Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the World Football Summit podcast. I'm your host, Jaime, CMO at World Football Summit. Today, we have our first interview within our new series aimed at celebrating and encouraging female leadership in football. And we could not think of a better guest to bring to the show. Ariana Cristione, former professional football player for teams like Paris Saint-Germain and now head of women's football at Next Sports, joins us for an amazing conversation on the current state of women's football and its potential. What is needed for women's football to unlock the next level of growth? The differences in approaches towards developing women's football in North America versus Europe. But we also get to know Ariana as a leader and a changemaker, and the advice she has for aspiring female leaders of the football industry. Ariana is simply a force of nature, and I'm sure you will feed off her energy, just like I did during the conversation. And she will join us for WFS Europe in Sevilla on September 20th and 21st. Will you? We have just launched a special ticket for female leaders in sports, which grants you access to exclusive workshops with other industry leaders, unique discounts, and much more. If you are looking to take the next step in your sports industry career, this is your chance. Head over to www.worldfootballsummit.com. Again, that's www.worldfootballsummit.com and submit your request. And with that, enjoy this Sports Business Masterclass on women's football and leadership with Ariana Cristioni from Next Sports. Well, Ariana, thank you so much for joining us at the World Football Summit podcast. Uh, it is great to have you, and it is great to uh, have you as the first guest in our uh, Female Leaders in Football series. Um, really looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I did not realize I was the first guest, so I guess I, I have to really bring it today and, and set the bar high to keep the Women's Series going well. I have no doubt you will bring it. I'm 100% sure. Anyway, Ariana, before we go into the conversation, which I think is going to be very interesting because we're going to talk about opportunities in women's football, we're going to talk about leadership, but before uh, we go into it, I don't know if you can tell the audience a little bit about yourself, and I always like to ask my guests, um, why is it that you do what you do? Why did you decide on this career path after your career in football or soccer? Um, why did I get in this part? Playing the game, I always knew that I actually. I think even even younger, um, it was a TV show that I loved. It was it was uh, about a football agent, but an American football agent, baseball. He was he was a sports agent. I think it was Arlix was the actual name. It was an HBO TV show, probably like thirty years ago, and I thought it was so cool that you could work in sport in that way. And then I learned that you had to get a a law degree and do all this stuff to go into sports. And that seemed really complicated when I wanted to play also. And having to go back to school later after my football career would be super difficult. So I think I'd always had it in my mind. How can I keep working in sports and especially in football, but really in sports in general um, forever? Like once you get off the field, how do you keep going? And the longer I played in uh, played football, the more, pockets of help I saw that were needed. There were definitely gaps in the market and just overall, how could the game get better? How could sports be better? And what could I do and what are my skill sets that could help that? And the obvious answer was women's football and how do I develop this? How do I make it better for those that come after me? Uh, where where does the game need to go and, and what can I do to get it there? 
Yeah, I think the industry needs more of that. You no, know? people like yourself who have been in the game, who identified the gaps in the game, and then who transition to make it better from if you you know if you let me from the sidelines, let's say. You no, know? and and now you're at Nextport. So um, I don't know if you could define just very briefly your role within Nextport. I don't know if you can divide your role within or into buckets, let's say, of, of what you do. So at Next Sports, I'm the director of women's football, and it does get a little, a little unique as we're technically a digital transformation and innovation agency, and we do other consulting work. My focus is on women's sports and especially women's football, obviously, and how we can develop blueprints, strategies, and objectives for stakeholders in and around the game to develop their women's sections, to develop their women's product. Uh, to continue growing with them from that business perspective, whether that's on-field performance, we have a lot of expertise in that area To And where I really enjoy and, and trying to build it is that strategic um, viewpoint of building the game from a business standpoint. How do we actually have ROIs on women's game? What is a four-year plan? What is a five-year plan? What does the 10-year plan look like? Where's the investment coming? Um, who's investing? Is it human resources? Is it just finance? Um, is it a top-down approach, bottom-up? Like who's making the decisions? How close are the women's decision makers to the rest of the decision makers in the club? All of these different aspects and how they can come in and develop the women's side of the game. Okay, so actually that's that's great because that ties well with the first question I did want to ask you uh, about women's soccer. Um, I think nobody doubts that 2022 has been a remarkable year for women's soccer. But I would say there's still a lot to get done or to be done. Um, so I want to first understand if, well, if you agree. And if so, um, what do you think needs to happen to unlock that next level of growth? I mean, I think it's already unlocked. I think if you're playing a video game, you've already clicked it, you're going into the next level, the level's going on. I think there's always... I don't know, I guess I'll, I'll keep with this analogy of a video game and there's always the monsters or other things coming at you. But I think we haven't figured it out, but we're getting there and there's still growth. Every time I, I open my phone or my computer, I can see great things happening in the game, fans coming to the games. And it's not always huge sold out games, it's even the smaller and then the lower tiers getting fans to those games. The recognition, the fact that we know that clubs have women's teams, um, the fact that everything I've seen about the awards last night, I know this will be aired later, but last night was the FIFA Best Award, and almost everything yep. I've seen is a photo of the men's FIFA Best and the women's FIFA Best. It's the men's FIFA, FIFA Pro 11, it's the women's FIFA Pro 11. So seeing those things just naturally and normally side by side is, I think, one of the best indicators of success that w the women's game is going there. Uh, I want to stop calling it the women's game. Well, I'm actually okay with calling it the women's game when we call it the men's game too. But I think this is this is showing where we're going. We don't, it is a separate product, but at the same time, it's the same. And so if we can try to unite them and keep them just, when you talk about Manchester United, you talk about men and women. When you talk about PSG, you talk about the men and women, or you don't even have to figure out which one you're talking about. You just know. Um, then I think we'll have really gotten there. And I think... This year, there's a lot of things happening, which I'm probably sure we're going to go into. 2022 was the year of visibility. And and actually, this comes up to something, too. 
2022, we're visible. People know that women's football is here. People know that the women are there. Now it's coming down to accessibility. And this is actually something that you and I will probably go into, but our women's football business report will be coming out soon. And it's a key factor and something that I kept hearing over and over in our conversations. Okay, you can see us, now what? Exactly. And you know what? I've heard that. Well, two points regarding your answer. Um, first off, I once heard an expression which uh, I, I liked in the sense that it was, this is not women's football. It's football played by women, meaning the sports is the same. So there's no really reason to treat them differently. Um, and to your second point, I've also talked to uh, a bunch of leaders uh, through this podcast, and, and they all agree. It's a matter of accessibility and, and really getting um you know getting kids to to be able to play around the world because it, this is a global game and and we need uh kids around the world and, and girls to to play uh to help grow the sport no um and in that sense also Ebru Koksal shared uh, a piece of data that I think it's worth reflecting upon and basically she was saying that out of the total value that soccer generates around the world Only 2% goes into, let's say, football played by women, no? Do you feel that out of the total value that soccer generates, um, there's far less uh, money coming back into the women's game compared to the men's game? Yes. I mean, obviously, I don't think we're getting as much investment, but I think sometimes, too, we focus on dollars and euros and yen and, and all of this stuff, which is which is what makes the world go round and which is vital. But I think the really cool thing about women's football is a lot of people that work in the game and it's not just women, it's men too, are very creative. So if mm. you have a budget, your budget gets very creative on how you disperse that money and where that money goes. And so while I'd love to see a lot of clubs invest more money and the brands come in and, and sponsor and, and bring in more money to the women's game, I also think that we can't only focus on that because a lot of the clubs don't have it or they're not willing to give it or or for a plethora of reasons why it's not trickling back into the women's game. And where I'd like to focus is on the positive and, okay, if I only have this much money, how do I make it work? And I think women are really good at doing that. I mean, historically in the household, women run the, run the household monetary fund. Mothers who don't have a lot of money somehow make it through the big holidays and, and, and different things like that. So, I just I think that there's a similar attribute that comes in into sport and I would love to see the distribution of some funds redistributed differently. That would be great. I mean, we see some national teams redistributing how much money go out to the players, which is awesome. Um, the redistribution at a club level is slightly different because you're not getting the same return, the same fans, the same jersey sales. So making it 50-50 already would not be equitable. Um, but how do we make... How do we make it more equitable? How do we get more people? What's the circular? Where do we put money into the game that will actually develop it and, and do more in the long run? I agree. In a sense, it's kind of like a like a startup, no? You have less resources. 100%. And you need to you need to kind of like be creative. And, and I totally agree that women in that sense, you, you're more creative than, than we are. That's for sure. Um, and also, um, well, I was also thinking that... Um, We carried out a poll in the World Football Summit LinkedIn page and actually women's football was identified as the, let's say the story with the biggest potential for 2023. Um, 
So would you say, I mean, and this was actually above uh, investment from, you know, from, from all over the place, from foreign investors, private equity, et cetera, uh, artificial intelligence, and even uh, the new content, um, let's say, that is being developed, whether it's documentary. So, I mean, at the end of the day, these are big concepts. Would you say that that optimism around women's football is, is justified? Absolutely. And I don't even know if I'd say optimism. By no means am I an economic, and I did not do great in all my economic classes in university. But for me, looking at it, and maybe an economics person will come back and argue this, I feel like the economics of the women's game makes more sense. And that in the men's game, there's already so much money and there's already so much happening that it's very small incremental growth. And the very small changes can financially make a big difference when you're talking about the amount of money that, that's in the men's game. But the women's game, because of the base level at the moment, with little money, you can have huge changes. The incremental growth is massive. And so putting more money or putting more human resources, putting more effort will have a bigger impact. And I think that's where the difference comes in. And to slightly challenge you, I'd love to see some of those foreign investors come in and start investing in women's football. Why can't a foreign in investor have a piece of the women's side of the club and not necessarily the men's and see where the investment goes? I mean, again, creativity can come in here and, and how you divide it. Clubs are divided into all different percentages of, of the owners who owns what and if it's on the stock market, if it's an open club in, in different ways. So why not have an owner come in have the branding of the club, follow their rules and regulations, but be a separate owner for the women's side. I mean, I just think it'd be cool to see it and see how somebody does it. Substantial incremental change that can happen in the women's game. That is where a lot of people are talking about. This is where the development is. This is where the growth can be. The men can only move so much on a, on a ticker. Totally agree. And, and actually, I've, I've wondered uh, myself why, for example, when you see examples like uh, Angel City or Gotham uh, in the US, they're getting uh, huge rounds of investment. Why isn't that happening here now in Europe? Uh, it doesn't really make sense, considering that there's also passion for the game here. Uh, and you see all those investments going into different clubs around Europe of the men's side, but not, not, not in the women's side. So yeah, full, fully agree on that. Um, in that sense, given your work, you had um, a lot of exposure to, <clears throat> let's say, markets uh, that are finally investing uh, in, in women's football, so uh, Poland, Rwanda, et cetera. No? So based on that, what would you say would be, let's say, three pillars that would enable building a solid business strategy around women's football? I think this gets very complicated because I think there's probably like, 10 to 20 pillars out there. And, and I think it would depend on club. I think it would depend on country. I think it would depend on market, which of those pillars are most important. And I would explain it that in, and just because this is what we understand, men's football, you have clubs that are clubs that go to win the league and you have clubs that develop youth talent so that they can sell it and keep the club going. So their pillars would be fundamentally different in developing their club for what they need, what the sponsors would be supporting, what the fans would be supporting. Um, a club hoping to finish in the top five to seven or just qualify for Europe is completely different than a club not wanting to be relegated than a club going for the championship. And so in this way, women's football is the same. You have to look at the club, who's behind the club, what players you have, um, and where you're going. I think uh, development and grassroots is always vital, especially right now in the women's game, talking about accessibility and making sure that women are there. But 
again, depending on how much funding you have, you might not be able to create five teams underneath your women's first team. So this is a very complicated question. I don't, there's no cookie cutter answer. I think it's impossible and it would do a disservice to everybody out there to say, these are for sure the three pillars. This is what you have to focus on. Well, you know, I love your answer because at the end of the day, what you're effectively saying is that context really matters here. A thousand can, percent. Right. So it really needs to, um, yeah, you need to adapt your strategy to the context that you're playing in. No, every game is different, let's say. So this is this is uh, the same here. So, but based on that, and and feel free to answer this one or not. But do you, or can you think of a, let's say a best in cl- best in class example? I think the cliche one that everybody's going to go to is Angel City. Uh, they started from scratch and they built this behemoth in the most positive way uh, club that is is very well known. They've only played one season of football. They've been around for, I want to say, three years there technically now. Um, but that is a very isolated case. And what they've done is absolutely incredible. And, and I think it's a great example for this. You cannot replicate that in a random town in France, no matter how much money. It just, it would not work. I mean, you could have billions of dollars to invest in women's football and you could not take their exact strategy for numerous reasons. And not just because they have the star studded investors that they have behind them that obviously has a name, but they're still, they're playing in Los Angeles, the community around them, the knowledge about women's football in the area, the amount of girls that play soccer in the area, all of these things came together and the stars aligned, pun intended with Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, and created this amazing club. Um, another example that came out at the same time was San Diego Wave. They had a completely different approach and on paper, they were more successful from the, the footballing perspective. So you have two clubs, a couple hours apart, same state, uh, same league, around the same investment, and they have completely different strategies. Um, so I think those are cool strategies to look at. Not exactly a, a blueprint for other clubs because you can't follow exactly what they've done. Um so maybe not helpful for a lot of people if I'm telling them they probably shouldn't try to follow it exactly. But I think the keys to what they've done, which people can follow, they learned about their market. They understand who was around and how they could build around their market, their geography, their culture, and creating their own culture around it. And so I think those are are the key takeaways from those two clubs. Again, it goes back to context. And, and your answer, actually... Um, reminds me of a framework, let's say, that I discussed with uh, Felix Torralba. He's the chief revenue officer at Mallorca. Um, and, and basically, he described it as uh, three circles, if you may. So you have your context. So, for example, in the case you were mentioning Angel City, so the geographic location, the Hollywood, and, you know, the let's say the pop culture. Then you have what the fan wants. So there was a lot of interest for, for the women's game there. But then you also have your club assets. Um, and that, uh, you know, that, that creates your unique context, uh, which is, I think, where uh, anybody looking to develop any type of strategy needs to play in. No? Um, and then I, I'm also thinking about um, Claire Bloomfield from the European Club Association during uh, World Football Summit. She had an interesting um, quote, which basically said that everything starts with uh, increasing the quality of the game. Because if you do that, you're going to drive in more fans 
and more interest towards the game, which effectively that's going to draw in interest from sponsors and investors. Um, so I want to understand first, do you agree? So I think it's always a cycle. And I think she's, she's right in saying the product needs to be better. We need a better footballing product because it'll make it more exciting. People want to watch the games. And I think when we talk about product too, especially in a lot of the leagues, you have great products from the top clubs. And then what, as you go down um, the ladder, it's more complicated. They might not train as much, but they don't get to train as much and they don't have those things because there's not the investment or the financial behind it to be able them to have training ground that might be a, a difficulty to have lights to have a safe place for players to get home after to have a lot of different things and so i think product is definitely in this cycle mm -hmm. okay uh but, and it's just depending on where in the cycle you decide to start because if you had more investment then you could have more training then you'd have a better product okay. and so i think it depends again just going back to the depending on your market or where you are or how you're starting which one you would focus on because if you're a club that can't even pay any players, how are you going to make a better product? And uh, within that too, and going back to the accessibility, if you don't have any youth players coming through the system and you're not developing your own players and you're not getting girls in the community to start playing, where are you even creating this team? Uh, so it's always this circle of which is the key part that I'm going to start at. And I think that depends on club to club and market to market. No, oh, thank you for that answer because, um, yeah, you're totally right. Um, I love when these kind of frameworks get uh, new elements in there and, and, and it's true. Again, it goes back to context, no? as we said um, earlier. No? Um, any ideas on how you would improve the quality of the game? I think improving the quality of the game starts from a grassroots level of getting girls able to play football at a young age, getting their motor skills up. When I was 30 years old and I was playing and I loved it, if you put me in a more professional situation, I was going to get better, but it goes back to that very small increments of better that I could get at that age. I'd been, you know, I had certain set habits, certain things that yes, putting me in a more professional environment, playing at certain times, having better coaches, I was going to get better, but not the same as if you can do it with a 12 year old or an eight year old and they go through a system like you have boys going through academies. And so I think this is where I'd love to start to see a fundamental change and getting more girls able to play sports and told that, yes, you can play and you can play soccer. And if you want to go pro, that's awesome. And if you don't and you just want to play through the academy system, that's great, too. And just getting them engaged in sports, which will become fans of the teams. And you'll have another whole that separate circle of getting people into the game, getting them loving clubs and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But I want to start seeing more investment at that grassroots and, and the different stages of um, of the women's journey into the game. Again, in our women's business report, we did a round table previously and, and one of our guests was from Arsenal and he was telling us something that I didn't know and I'm very happy to know now that they have an issue because they have the youth teams, but a U19 player can't really jump into the first team once they finish their U19 like age level. Okay. The product, the professional level, has gotten so much higher, so much more intense that they need another age group higher for that player to continue to develop. Maybe they'll come into the, the team a couple times or do some training and stuff, but they're not ready to make that full jump into the first team where five, 10 years ago, women were because that product, that final product wasn't that much higher. And now 
you know, a lot of teams used to have a, a full women's team, maybe a U19 and then a U15. A 15-year-old to a 19-year-old is a substantial difference. Mm-hmm. In the boys' game, you don't have 15 and 19-year-olds 19 normally playing together. You usually have U15, U16, U17, 18, 19. You'll have an anomaly or a couple of players, but even just the physical stature and, and what you're able to do in that growth is completely different. And so now the women's game is, is catching up in that way that we have to start having more women's teams. You can't just have a U15 and everybody under 15 years old from 11 years old is playing with the U15s. They need to have that developmental stage. Um, and so more teams need to come in. I've heard that from many leaders. And in fact, on last week's episode of, of the podcast, we picked up a several quotes from from leaders like, for example, Cindy Parlocone from US Soccer. Um, and basically, one of the challenges that she was mentioning is how to grow, uh, yeah, the, 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 the youth uh, or the grassroots programs, how to make first accessibility, which is a point we were discussing earlier, but also how to make the game fun uh, for, for girls. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really key, how, how they can enjoy. And then from there, you, you get all the benefits, you know, you get uh, values and you get education through sports. You get a lot of values, but, but it has to be fun for, for the girls, you know, and, and easy to play, I would say. Um, shifting gears a little bit, Ariana, um, if, if you were running a football club uh, and you got, you know, you were able to close a major sponsorship deal and you could only allocate those resources into one single area, which one would it be? I think you're going to hate me because I'm going to go back to my first answer. What club am I? Where am I at? What country? What league? Uh, what market? Like, uh, if I was in the NWSL, and even then, depending on what state I'm in, it would depend on how I develop that team. If I was in the WSL, am I already with a, connected to a major men's? Like, I, I don't have... An answer. It would really depend on on context. those different factors. Yeah, the context. Like it's it, it's the highlight of our conversation today. And then I'm not trying to get out of your questions, but it has to be the context because what I would do in the NWSL is not what I would do in League One in France, and then it's not what I would do in the WSL in England. Oh, not at all. I mean, I appreciate your answer because you're totally right. I think uh, we're always trying to look for that silver lining, anything that's going to work. But at the end of the day, it's just not that it's not that straightforward. No context is, is just uh, the king or the queen of everything, really. Um, and um, I guess my last question on this uh, section about uh, women's soccer. Um, you see a lot of investors going into uh, or there's a trend uh, towards investing in, in, in North America with Angel City, Gotham, Kansas City, even though no, Patrick Mahomes started to invest heavily on, on, on the team there. Do Sorry, you... though, I do have to correct you. His wife is one of the founders of that team, though. And so it started because of her, not because of him. OK, ah, good, good correction. Thank you for that, because I didn't know that. Um, uh, I think what I want to understand is, do you think this trend, first, is it going to continue? Second, do you think it will expand across the globe? Again, I think this goes back a little bit to one of my first comments that I'd love to see investors coming in. But the United United States system is fundamentally different than any other country in the world. Historically, there's not older clubs like there are in in Europe and and in South America and and different countries. The MLS started their games this weekend and they just started the 28th season. So while it's 
league that you know has been around for quite a while it's still not hundreds of years old a hundred years old like some other clubs there's not clubs more than hundreds of years old um and so we see that in especially i'm going to compare europe to the us right now because it's two markets that i'm the most familiar with but in europe you have historical clubs that have now created women's teams and in you know deloitte money league and in, in the different reports that we've recently seen come out they've proven that the clubs with big following and well-known clubs who create a women's team they have a trickle-down effect of, of people following their women's team now because it's their men's team and, and that this is a great way to develop women's football in europe previously we had historical women's only clubs and unfortunately a lot of those have gone under or have been bought by the men's clubs in order to go into the top division and and get through the pyramid quicker so we don't see them anymore, which is super unfortunate. I won't go into a bunch of details about that. Talking about the NWSL, the NWSL, all the clubs you mentioned are independent clubs. They're mm-hmm. not clubs with their men's team. So you have to have investors. You're not, you don't have a, a set infrastructure there that the women's teams can just be plugged into, which is a bonus actually in Europe. I mean, you already have fields, you have trainers, you have physical structures, not to mention from a business perspective, you have a name, you have tax numbers, all of this stuff that we sometimes forget about when we just think about the on pitch playing. Uh, But in the United States, you have new teams. There's very few clubs that are associated with an MLS team. And so all the women's teams are, not all of them, but most of them, are independent. And this creates a completely different structure and a different way to run your team. Some of those teams are building their own soccer-specific stadiums and specifically soccer-specific stadiums for their women's clubs. So it's a different number. They're looking at it differently, how they're building it. Um, and so these are very cool things that are happening in the women's game. And, and it's not necessarily revolutionary, but it's very exciting, but completely different from Europe because it's not the same model and they're not building teams in, in Europe. They're they're developing or they're growing yeah, it from the inside where in the US they're starting from scratch. They're creating logos, they're creating um brands and brands, culture. Like you have to have a whole fan base. I mean, you literally are taking a whiteboard and starting from zero. I don't yeah. know how the clubs that are going into the NWSL next season are gonna do when they haven't officially been announced and they have to do all of this stuff, let alone create a football team and have staff and, and all of this stuff. So these are the fundamental differences that that make it more complicated. I think the mindset is different. I mean, um, to your point, I think if you compare it to like TV series, you know, I think in Europe we're kind of like on the spin-off mentality. So we have all these main clubs, and from there we create, let's say, parallel women's football structures. But at the end of the day, they're tied back to what the club has been doing traditionally. Whereas in, again, going back to what we were mentioning before, I think in the United States, it's more like that startup mentality. We're creating everything from scratch. We're redefining the game. And I think there's also an element of, and I was speaking um, with Jordan Gardner about this. It seems that finally soccer has gotten into the mass market uh, or the mass culture, if you will, you know, because of Ted Lasso and because of, you know, um, Ryan Reynolds and Wrexham and all of that. And I think both the men's and the women's game are kind of like benefiting from that wave. And they're just really able to do cool things, uh, leveraging also that the mindset is very different. No? Um, so, yeah, thank you for, for that answer, Adriana. Um, I think for, for the time that we have remaining, and um, I, I want to, if that's okay, uh, get to know you more a, a little bit um, as a leader. I was doing research on, on everything you've done, and it's just simply amazing. Not the career you've had, not only uh, playing soccer, but also on the, let's say, different uh, 
roles that you've had on the side, no? Uh, so you've interned at Benfica, you were also working at uh, PSG. So to me, the, the sense is that you're, you're a change maker um, in, in, that, in that regard. Um, and I have a feeling that there's a lot of people out there that have, let's say, the skills, but for whatever reason, they don't have that mindset to actually go out and get it. Um, so I don't know if you can help the audience and especially the aspiring female industry leaders. Um, what does it take to be a change maker? What, what, what do they need to do? So I would say, and I've had this conversation a few times, it, it does have to do partially with my personality and, and how my personality was developed probably a lot from playing, from playing football and, and from being a goalkeeper and, um, as a goalkeeper, a lot of time you have to go out for the cross and, and you don't know what's going to happen. And if you miss it, you're going to get scored on and you might get embarrassed. It might be horrible. Or you might make an incredible save and save the day or a thousand and one things can happen, but you have to go. Uh, and it's the same on a, on a lot of different situations in football. And so for me, it's the same when I work, I have to go. And so when I think about something and, and so many things run through my head to the point where my husband drives him nuts. Uh, yeah. But when I'm working in football or any of the tables that I've sat at or the rooms that I've in, uh, I had a teacher one time tell me the only stupid question is the one that you leave the room not answering. And I've probably taken that to the extreme. And anybody who listens to this who really knows me is probably laughing about that right now because I ask so many questions. If I have a question, I'm going to ask you. I don't care if it's stupid. I don't care if everybody else in the room knows the answer. If I don't know it, I want to know it and I'm going to find out. And I'm going to find the person that can answer it for me. And this has been frustrating probably for a lot of people, but it's helped me a lot. And again, I, I've had to tell people, I apologize. I'm sorry. I don't know what these letters mean. I don't know what we're talking about. I'm confused. Um, and I've found out a lot of times I'm not the only person in the room. I'm just the only one that wasn't afraid to go out for the cross. Um, and so I would say ask the questions. When I sit in a room, I don't care who's in the room. I want to come out of the room. Uh, I don't necessarily like the word better than I went into it, but I want, I didn't go sit in the room and, and take time to do something if I'm not learning something. And so if I have a question, I want to know the answer. And I really think that's been something that's helped me along the way of asking the questions. Not only does it help me personally, but it usually makes people remember me because if I'm asking a question and I tell you my name and, and you see my face and you recognize it, then later on when I run into you or, or we're discussing, it also helps my network. I'm not, um, I don't blend in one because I'm usually one of the only women in the room and two, I don't blend in because I'm one of the loudest ones. So these things are not easy for people with certain personality types, but it's helped me and I would definitely say for a lot of women, don't be afraid to step up. Don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to let people know that you're in the room. That's great advice. And that's actually advice that I've heard from some of the best leaders in the world. So uh, totally agree on that. Um, and I think given your career, I think, um, you know, you, you put a lot of value in, in education, in starting your own side projects and, and just really just going up there uh, and try to do stuff, really. Um, in that regard, if there's anybody out there, any any uh, yeah, any person looking to um, see where the opportunities are within the industry, um, would you be able to tell them any opportunity that they should look out for? I mean, I think there's tons of opportunities out there, and I think it's not always a a job 
on the board. It's not just job boards. Like so some of the best people create jobs. The, the, the organization didn't even know they needed that kind of job, but you have a skill set that can add value to them. And so talking to them and, and networking. And I think one of the biggest things is networking and, and making sure people know who you are so that when certain opportunities come up or conversations happen, you are the person that pops into their mind. Um, but I would say figuring out what you're good at and your skill set and developing them, figuring out what you're bad at and just trying to get better at it, which is not always the easiest thing. And not sitting back and waiting for things to happen to you. I think I actually sent a quote to a friend today uh, about women that a lot of people say women are lucky when certain things happen, but they don't see everything that goes in into what you did to actually get there. And people don't have to see how hard you're working, but you have to keep working. Like Nobody I know that's in a successful position did it just fall in their lap? Even if it looks like it did, they did a lot of stuff to get them in that position for it to quote unquote fall into their lap. Um, and that you can't, you can't wait. And just because there's something you've done in the past doesn't mean you can, you can't rest on your laurels and, and hope that something happens. At the end of the day, it's like an iceberg. No, I mean, people see the top of the iceberg, but there's a, a foundation that's kind of like the base there of all the hard exactly. work you've done, right? Exactly. So, I mean, I've had people too, and, and if you've heard my story, and again, I'm not going to go into it, you know, I sat on a plane, I talked to somebody, I started playing at PSG. For sure, the stars aligned in that moment, very fortuitous. But I did a lot to get myself sitting on that plane at that moment. It wasn't a, like I'd never done anything else and it was the first time on a plane. Definitely, no, because you... I mean, and that's something that really stood out from the research that I did because you played at, a, I mean, you decided to go to Europe to play back in at a time when women's football was not popular at all. And you went through a lot of stuff and you went through injuries and you went through a lot of things to actually get to to, to where you are. So so I think, yeah, that, that would do for a separate podcast. But um, that, that kind of like begs the question, I guess. Um, yeah, you've been, you've been a, an athlete and... I think there are a lot of you know athletes that that are listening to us right now, and they're also thinking about their career after sports. No, what are some of the values that um, you learned during your playing career that actually helped you in that transition to to a life after sports, if you will? So I think almost everything we learn as athletes helps you in your post career, being on time, working in a team environment. Um, taking responsibility for, for the good and the bad. Um, a lot of, a lot, a lot of things. I mean, there's tons of studies and, and podcasts talking about the attributes that athletes obtain on the field, soft and hard skills that go into the business side afterwards. One of the things that I really try to stress and, and I like to talk about, and I think it's so important is whether you're just starting your career or you're ending it, you can be thinking about what happens next. Just because you're 22 years old and you're going into the professional aspect of your of your career on the field, one day you will stop playing, and one day you're still want to go. You're still going to want to hit your goals. You're still going to want to achieve things, even if you've had the best career ever. Alexia Puteas, when she retires one day, will still want to wake up and do stuff. She's not yeah. going to retire from football and go sit on her couch and then like, cool, the next yeah. 50, 30, whatever years. I hope she has lots of them. It's just me chilling now. No. And American athletes, I think, are some of the best to prove this about what they do during their professional careers to set them up to continue this active 
go get her, you know, wake up early in the morning lifestyle. You don't just sleep in every day once, once you're done with your career because you don't have training in the morning. Um, and so athletes don't have to think about, oh, I think I might retire in the next couple of years. Now what? No, start earlier. And if you are at that stage, don't freak out. Like you can still do stuff and, and you can still get creative. But I think we really have to start out helping athletes learn skill sets or things that they enjoy doing or hobbies. And, and it doesn't have to revolve around sport. It can be completely separate or it can be a very cool crossover. There's a female player from France who was a top player, played on the national team, got into videos and recording. And now she does all the games at Lyon and she does women's champions league games. Very cool school skill set. Uh, not necessarily she could take that off of football do other sports or do movies or do whatever so i think we have to start helping athletes learn other skills encourage their hobbies and show them that if you're thinking about your post career it's okay it doesn't mean you're not focused on being the best in your sport today and it's really important to start thinking about it that actually reminds me of an interview i heard with uh abby wambach and she was saying she's a legend now in the u.s and she is and she's now um, a podcast host, and, she, and she's an author. And one of the things she was saying is, hey, you would have told me five, ten years ago that I would have been a podcast host and an author. I would have laughed at you so hard. But now this is a part of my life that I'm enjoying so much. Uh, so, yeah, to your point, I, I couldn't agree more. There's so many avenues to pursue. Um, in any case, um, to finish uh, this section, Ariana, um, I don't know if you can share some advice to aspiring women leaders. Um, are you optimistic about their future as leaders in the industry? And, and if so, what, what advice would you share? 100%. We have to be optimistic. Why would we wake up every day if you didn't think you're going to win the game? Um, what advice would I share to leaders? I mean, I, th I think it's the same advice from before. Be yourself. Ask the questions. Get in the room. Don't take no for an answer. Uh, make mistakes, get up again. You're going to make mistakes. I'm going to keep making mistakes. I'm going to keep going, but I'm definitely going to make mistakes. I make them daily. Um, but don't be afraid of your mistakes and um, just keep doing what you want to do. That's great advice because um, it actually ties very well with several of the quotes we uh, picked up on the podcast uh, last week. Uh, so Lena from the European Club Association, Danita Johnson from DC United, they had similar advice. So uh, definitely uh, that's something that I totally align with. Um, uh, so Ariana, uh, we have just a couple of minutes left and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I just want to ask you, um, you are a quote unquote regular at in-person events. Um, so and across the world, really. What is the value that these type of events um, bring to the table and, and with a particular focus to any aspiring uh, female leader looking to develop her career in sports? Again, some of the things we've already talked about. One, when I wasn't on the stage and even when I go, if I have a question, I raise my hand in the auditorium and I ask it. And those people on the stage, sometimes they like me, sometimes they hate me, but they probably remember me because I ask certain questions. Um, talking to people off stage, talking to people in the room, I think I'm so happy that we're out of the COVID period and that we're able to go back to live events and be able to talk to each other, interact with each other. Because while this is great and, I, and I, I'm so happy we're able to do this like this and we have the technology, 
there's something about being able to talk to somebody in person. Even if we were doing a podcast, if we were able to do it in person and you could see my hands and you could see my body language more, just our interaction would be different and the people listening would be able to hear that. And so I think the live events really give this and and the other things that you learn that you didn't know and seeing new technology or new products that are coming on the market that are out of my wheelhouse or not, not things that I'm normally aware of because it's not directly affecting my daily working life. But I really enjoy learning about what those are and, and who's building them and why. And this is what I enjoy about going to those conferences and, and what I would recommend that people do go to the conferences and get tickets. And whether you're speaking or whether you're just engaging, it, it's still a positive experience. Well, thank you for that answer. And, and to the, the first part of your answer, personally, I, I really appreciate all the uh, speaking engagement that you're in because, you know, you, you transmit a lot of energy and, and you, that's even contagious at some point. Like, hey, I need to get, the, you know, to, to be as energetic uh, during my day. So so I want to thank you for that now that we're talking about this. Um, anyway, Ariana, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. It's been, it's been amazing. Two last questions on my side. I don't know if there's anything else. Um, that you want to cover any topic that you want to discuss we're good to go i think we're good to go great and where can people find out more about you is there any resource um that you want to point out to uh, the floor is yours i say my, my linkedin is, is a pretty solid place to figure out what i think about topics or what my opinion is on a lot of stuff and then start paying attention to my linkedin and next linkedin and i'm sure world football summit will be posting it but our next Women's Football Business Report will be released um, very soon. And I'm always excited about that. And my team who's helped me build that and work on that um, has done a great job. And so that's definitely something too, to see what's what's going on in women's football and where we think it's going. I really look forward to reading that report. Um, so yeah, definitely. And we will share with our audience once you have that. So let us know. Uh, Ariana, thank you so much. It's been great. Um, I hope to bring you in for a second round in the future. And of course, uh, I really hope to see you at uh, World Football Summit events this year. Definitely. Thank you for having me and uh, keep it going. I'm excited to see what other women you have on this podcast and and, hope, and I oh. want to learn from them. Oh, I mean, I think you're going to enjoy it. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Ariana. Thanks. Bye. 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 And there you have her, Ariana Criccione bringing her energy to the show, as well as her timeless lessons on leadership and the future of women's football. What were the key takeaways for me from this amazing conversation? First, 2022 was the year of visibility for women's football, and 2023 has to be the year of accessibility. Facilitating accessibility for girls to play football is where everything starts. I actually loved Ariana's way of summarizing it. You can see it, now what? Second, context is everything. It is hard to believe you would be able to replicate Angel City in a town or area of another part of the world. It is good to learn from them, but they will not be a blueprint necessarily. The same goes for partnerships and sponsorship. The context is everything. Remember that. And of course, her advice as a leader and changemaker is timeless. Don't be afraid to step up and speak out. Ask questions. Even if you feel it is a stupid question, chances are others in the room are thinking the same. Make your presence felt in the room. And finally, and perhaps more importantly, don't wait for things to happen to you. Keep working and going at it, even if people at first do not see the results of your hard work. 
Is there anything else that stood out for you? If so, please reach out across social media and let us know. And remember, you can subscribe and rate the podcast on the platform of your choice, and you can also share it with other colleagues in the industry. Remember to follow along as we invite more amazing guests that will help us celebrate female leadership in football. Nothing else from my side. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the World Football Summit podcast. Have a great rest of your day, and we hope to see you next time.